Welcome to the Green Investor powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia and your guide and fellow traveler on our journey into what it means to be a green investor today and where this investing theme is headed in the future. On this week's show, the U.S. Supreme Court did what we expected it to do last week, handing down a ruling that limits the federal government's ability to rein in greenhouse gas emissions. We break down what that means for the future of the Environmental Protection Agency and the government's oversight over the fossil fuel industry. Carrie Jenks, the executive director of Harvard's Law School's Environmental and Energy Law Program, joins the show to explain the ruling and map out next steps. And Europe lays down a framework to eliminate carbon emissions from new cars and vans by the year 2035. We'll get into that as well as the other headlines from the world of green investing. But first, and always, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in securities mentioned on this podcast, and some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast, but all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled last week that federal regulators, namely the Environmental Protection Agency, exceeded its authority in seeking to limit emissions from power plants. The decision reduces the executive branch of the government's authority to make policy actions on a broad range of issues and shifts that power to the Congress. We saw this one coming as we discussed last episode, but let's get up to speed on what's happened. The Supreme Court ruled 6-3 to three in a decision penned by Chief Justice John Roberts that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, as it's known, had overstepped when it devised the Clean Power plan. That plan, enacted during the Obama administration, effectively set a goal for each state to limit carbon emissions while letting those states determine how to meet those goals. The court said that when federal agencies issue regulations with sweeping economic and political consequences, in this case, rules to address climate change, the regulations are presumptively invalid unless Congress has specifically authorized the action. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in his decision in West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency, quote, a decision of such magnitude and consequences rests with Congress itself or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. Environmental activists and organizations decried the decision, as you can imagine, while the coal industry celebrated it, as you can imagine. But the court's decision is a little more complex than meets the eye, and many of the unanswered questions could be very meaningful to the future of the fossil fuel industry and the U.S. government's ability to help regulate emissions. We are going to break format this episode and bring in our special guest earlier in the show, to get a better handle on what happened, why it matters, and what comes next. Carrie Jenks is the executive director of the Harvard Law School's Environmental and Energy Law Program and has studied this issue very closely, and she's our special guest this week on The Green Investor. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So how big of a deal is this SCOTUS decision? Put it in context for us, and so we'll get to sort of what it means and what it doesn't mean after you sort of set it up. Yeah, I think it is a big deal and that it's the first time we're seeing major questions doctrine explicitly named and referred to in the majority opinion. But this was foreshadowed in the oral argument and then in several cases leading up to this one. I think it's a big deal because it's an emerging doctrine. It's not yet well-defined, but it can be a way to constrain administrative agencies, including EPA, but not limiting EPA. Right. So would you say it's a setback for policy, emissions, and reduction goals in general, or or just sort of the groundwork for what could be more lawmaking 
that could loosen regulations on these industries even more? I think it's a caution for agencies to not do big things. And the court is constraining the agency in a way that we're seeing is new. We're still learning what major questions doctrine means. And as you mentioned at the intro, it's something in the past that was something that was economically and politically significant. But in West Virginia, we're seeing a subtle shift to say it applies in extraordinary cases. The court talks about history and breadth of what the agency is doing and whether it's been something that the agency has done before. And in those specific cases, it needs Congress to be explicit in telling the agency how to regulate. The majority spends a lot of pages in the opinion to say this isn't new, but I think it is new in the way the court is articulating the doctrine and embracing it. So let's talk about what this actually covers and what's still an open question. It doesn't really say that the EPA can't regulate power plants, does it? No, I think people thought it could be a lot worse. From a greenhouse gas perspective, all the court did was say they couldn't regulate using generation shifting. And that was how the clean power plant assumed that a higher emitting source like a coal plant would reduce its generation. And instead, a solar plant or a wind farm could replace its generation and thereby you'd see emission reductions. And the court said that's going too far. EPA can't do that. But what's an open question is what else EPA can do. I would argue that I think EPA thought even before the court took up this case that it wasn't going to do a system like the clean power plan. They signaled that to the court. I think the court is different than the justices that were on the court when the clean power plan was first proposed. So this decision takes that tool off of EPA's table, but there's still a lot of other things that could happen. The technologies continue to advance. EPA has signaled that they're thinking about co-firing with natural gas, carbon capture, how to make plants run more efficiently. All of that is still on the table. The question is, do those technologies trigger major questions doctrine? That's still to be determined. Right. And it also doesn't say the decision that the EPA can't regulate greenhouse gases from other sources or that it can't regulate other air pollutants. This wasn't a blanket thing about the EPA and regulating emissions in general. It was the use of the Clean Power Plan to do it, which some would argue was pushing the coal industry and the fossil fuel industry towards greener measures because that was the more economically viable way and the way to reduce emissions over time. But it's not limiting the EPA's ability to do that going forward, is it? No, it's not. I think the power companies that were in this case supporting EPA said, we will use generation shifting and we have historically used generation shifting to reduce emissions because that's the most cost-effective way to do that. And that's the way the grid operates historically. And companies will continue to be able to do that to comply. But in setting the standard, the court said you have to just look at what the technology availability is to reduce, not do the generation shifting. But I think you're right. I think it's clear EPA should be regulating greenhouse gases. The question is how. They also made it clear, I think it's important, that EPA is the entity, not the states, to determine what is the emission reductions that should be achieved. States then have to comply with that standard and figure out how best to do that. But I think it's important when we think back to what the Trump administration was arguing, where it was going to give states a lot more discretion. Here, EPA, um, the court clearly thinks that EPA should be setting the standard. Right. And some would argue, or many argue, especially environmental activists and groups, that Congress has no business setting climate goals, climate reduction goals, or even being involved in that conversation. They're not scientists. The scientists do that. Congress is a lawmaking body. And they also say that the court and the Congress has been bought out by hundreds of millions of dollars in lobbying from the fossil fuel industry. And they simply aren't in a position to make these types of decisions. But is that too narrow a reading of what went down last week? No, I think it's interesting and it's really difficult. I I would say, you know, that Congress did speak. They enacted the Clean Air Act and they designed the Clean Air Act to evolve. They're not the experts to to assess technologies. They're not the experts, the scientists. And Congress is supposed to give broad authority to the agencies and then the agencies need to work within that authority. Even if we had a Congress that I would say could enact 
legislation to address climate, they're still not going to be the right people to figure out how best to do that. That's what the agency should do. So that dynamic, I think, is, is going to be a difficult struggle to figure out. And then President Biden could use executive action as well if he wanted to put a bigger, bigger foot down on climate control or, cli- or emissions control if the administration wanted to do that as well through other measures. Is that wrong? I mean, I think EPA and other agencies can still look at their authority to understand what is possible. The challenge is going to be figuring out whether any of those actions trigger major questions. And I think we're going to have to keep evolving. This this doctrine will keep evolving. We'll have to see how the court responds to each decision by agencies. So what's next then for the EPA in this battle through legal recourse or other? I think they go back to the drawing board. They already thought they were doing that. They were starting to work on a new rule. They signaled that they're anticipating a new rule by March of 2023. They recently put a white paper out seeking comment on the technologies that are available. So they're going to be evaluating that. And I think all these questions they thought they were going to have to deal with anyway. I don't think the court's opinion really changes the questions, but the decisions they make will depend on the legal record that they establish. What are the technology options? What's the commercial availability? What's the cost considerations? All of those factors will matter very significantly now for EPA to evaluate, and they'll start to put a proposal out. They'll take comment, and then they'll have to finalize the rule. I think we end up back in the courts, but but we'll see what happens. Talk about the outlook then for the coal and fossil fuel industry, given this decision. Again, this was well telegraphed. I think, as you said, you know, the EPA was probably preparing for this long before it came up uh, or was coming up in the Supreme Court. But where does this position, if anything, the, the coal and fossil fuel industry now that we do have a decision? Yeah, I think the power sector is in a transition. I think it's important, really essential to recognize the targets that were in the clean power plan were already achieved a decade in advance on a nationwide basis, even without any regulation on greenhouse gases from EPA. And many of the power companies have aggressive climate targets for their own companies. So what has changed, though, is that when the clean power plan was finalized, is the debate's not really about whether we need to transition to lower emitting sources. It's really about the pace. So the question that remains is what will EPA do that alters that pace or will the industry continue on the pace that it's at right now? Was there anything inside the Supreme Court's decision that surprised you? You follow this issue pretty closely. Was there any wording or or things that were left unanswered beyond what we've talked about that surprised you? I think we thought we were going to be fighting about what is system and a very plain language argument of whether or not generation shifting fits fit into a system. I think the justices really use this opinion to shape what is the, now we, we are knowing as the major questions doctrine. I don't know that's surprising given what happened in the oral argument, but I think it's no longer about what the statute says necessarily, but more does an agency action strike the court as being too big. So for folks like me who don't know what major question really means, and a lot of our listeners probably don't understand that as well, what does that actually mean and why is it significant in this decision? I don't think you have to not be a lawyer to be confused. I think the lawyers are equally confused about what major questions is. It will continue to be defined and it is something that is too big for an agency to be doing and they want Congress to be able to speak. In this case, it was too big for EPA to assume generation shifting when it set up the standard. And they said that was too much. But what is not major questions or what is, we're going to have to wait and see. Well, how has this been brought up or has it been brought up in other issues around some of the cases that you follow? It's come up in some other cases, but in that case, it was an FDA case about tobacco products. And the court said here, we don't think that Congress told the FDA that they had the authority to regulate tobacco products. It's very different. We saw this in the dissent by Justice Kagan, very different here, where EPA is supposed to regulate air emissions. It is supposed to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. It is supposed to regulate power sector emissions. And the court in this case, for the first time, is really focusing on how the agency regulates as opposed to whether the agency regulates. 
So again, you follow this all very closely. What's looming on the regulatory or legal horizon that will also be a major factor in emissions reductions, regulations, targets, the use of federal agencies like the FDA or others to help bring down emissions and get us to those climate goals? Yeah, I think the power sector is obviously a major contributor to greenhouse gases, but EPA is working on other sectors that will reduce greenhouse gases, including the car rule, and they're proposing methane rules for oil and gas sector. And I think it is consistent that EPA will continue to look at its full authority under all the different regulations to reduce, continue to reduce power sector emissions, public health, sort of traditional air pollutants, as well as greenhouse gases. And are there other agencies beyond the EPA that are involved or that may have the regulatory eye sort of cast upon them who are also working towards these efforts? From the very start, the Biden administration has approached greenhouse gases and climate from a whole of government approach. They are looking at every agency's piece. So you've got the SEC also thinking about climate disclosures and what that means. No doubt they're already raising major questions doctrine of whether that's part of the SEC's authority. I think there's good arguments why that is. Investors are trying to understand climate risk and the SEC is responding to that. But that's going to be a critical piece and it'll be interesting to see how the SEC finalizes the rule as it's taking in comments and reviewing the comments that were already submitted. So we've talked about on this show as well, the SEC under Chair Gary Gensler uh, has been very adamant about wanting to get to a better definition of what ESG is, what responsible investing, impact investing. They're trying to do away with greenwashing, which has become sort of a scourge in the industry right now. And a lot of funds are, you know, have maybe participated in that. And we know that's a thing. You've probably read the SEC's proposal What's missing in that that you think is important or what is important that folks maybe haven't focused on enough? I think it's important to think about what do investors need? What are they asking for and what's already happening? A lot of companies are disclosing their climate risks. So I think investors need to have clear rules so that there's consistency and ability to compare the different disclosures that are happening. But to the extent someone's relying and trying to understand what a climate risk is, there are climate risks that are important to do. And I think the SEC has the ability to provide guidance and clarity about what should be required to be disclosed. Okay. Going forward to the back half of the year, what are you looking at within the Harvard Law School's environmental and energy law program that could be sort of a hot take or, or something that may surprise us by year end or in the next couple of years? That's a great question. I think it's going to be important for EPA to, and other agencies to really develop the record, the legal record, have it be technology-based so that the court can understand how each industry works. What is the industry already doing? EPA often follows state action, often follows what industry is doing and builds a record based on what is already happening. It's a backstop. It also can be forward-looking and create incentives for others to keep moving in that direction. But I think it's going to be essential for agencies to think about what the record is that they're developing, take comment, listen to industry, what's working, what's not. For the SEC, for example, what do companies need? What are they already disclosing? How can the SEC's rule make sure that they're disclosing something in a consistent way, but not require something that's wholly new? And I don't think the SEC is intending to do that. Well, we're going to find out pretty soon when that comment period ends, and we'll see what the SEC comes out with. Kerry Jenks, the Executive Director of Harvard Law School's Environmental and Energy Law Program. Thanks for breaking down that decision and for joining the Green Investor. We appreciate it. Thank you. Let's get into some other headlines around green investing, shall we? Lithium and battery producers are warning the European Union that a proposal to classify the metal as a reproductive toxin could severely hurt Europe's burgeoning electric vehicle industry. Lithium is a key part of EV batteries and widely used in pharmaceuticals, industrial lubricants, and specialty glasses. The proposal, being considered by the European Commission this month, would put some lithium chemicals in the highest category of reproductive and developmental toxins based partly on human studies carried out in the 1980s and 1990s. That could undermine separate efforts to boost domestic production 
production of lithium, which the Commission designated as a critical raw material in 2020. The proposal refers to lithium carbonate, hydroxide, and chloride. Lithium prices hit record highs just last month, topping $6,500 per metric ton before falling from those levels in recent weeks. Microsoft has launched a climate research effort in a bid to build a network of participants to tackle some key problems impacting the environment. The Microsoft Climate Research Initiative, as it's called, will focus first on carbon reduction and removal, carbon accounting, and environmental resilience, according to the company. An initial round of nine projects includes work on reducing emissions from cement and monitoring carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. China, the world's second largest carbon emitter, actually experienced a 7.9% decline in emissions from March to May of this year. COVID-related lockdowns and an ongoing property market slump played a big role in that drop, according to Carbon Monitor, which contributed to an overall drop in global pollution during the same period. Global emissions fell 0.3% year-over-year in the same three-month period, according to Carbon Monitor, and the only other major economy to see emissions drops over that period was Brazil. The recent boom in space travel could actually be fueling significant global warming while also depleting the ozone layer, according to a recent study published in Earth's Future. A key focus of the study was emissions of black carbon or soot from the combustion of rocket fuel. Black carbon, which comes from burning fossil fuels or biomass, absorbs light from the sun and releases thermal energy, making it a powerful climate warming agent. At lower altitudes, black carbon quickly falls from the sky, remaining in the atmosphere for only a matter of days or weeks. But when rockets blast into space, they emit black carbon into the stratosphere, where it remains absorbing sunlight and radiating heat for up to four years before falling back to Earth. Black carbon emitted in the stratosphere is nearly 500 times worse for the climate than similar emissions or those near the surface of the Earth, according to the study. Black carbon emissions from all space flights are currently relatively low, but they could quickly increase if projections for the growth of space tourism prove correct and billionaires like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Richard Branson continue their obsession with space travel. The European Central Bank plans to shake up its corporate bond portfolio, favoring issuers that pollute less, according to a statement from the bank released this week. The ECB will reinvest, quote, the sizable redemptions expected over the coming years in a way that penalizes companies with a big carbon footprint. The new plan will affect some 30 billion euros or $31.3 billion worth of reinvestments each year or around 10 percent of the ECB's corporate portfolio. United Arab Emirates is emerging as one of the world's biggest state financers of clean energy, according to the Wall Street Journal. Since November, when global nations agreed to accelerate emissions cutting plans at a United Nations summit, the UAE has said it will fund development of thousands of megawatts of solar energy projects in countries across the world. It has committed $400 million to enable developing nations transition to clean energy and pledged to help supply green electricity to 100 million Africans by the year 2035. The Gulf state, along with the U.S., also promised to raise $4 billion to invest in technologies that would transform agriculture and food production to limit climate change. Despite a steep sell-off in the shares of publicly traded climate tech companies, money continues to pour into private companies in the space. Intersect Power and three other climate startups have together raised more than $1.6 billion just last week, and that money has been coming from venture capital companies and large investment firms despite concerns about a possible recession. 
Intersect, which raised $750 million in last week's round from investors, including TPG Rise Capital, developed some of the biggest solar and battery storage facilities in the United States to generate clean power for utilities and companies, including Apple and Morgan Stanley. The company is expanding into so-called green hydrogen that is produced from renewable electricity. We talked about green hydrogen just a few weeks ago on the show, and a lot of industrial customers hope to use green hydrogen as a clean alternative to fossil fuels to power transportation and chemical processes. It's time for Green Facts, that part of the show where we dig into fascinating facts, figures, and products in the pond of green investing. And this week, we have a basket of interesting facts about renewable energy and global power generation, and they come to us, interestingly enough, from BP and its annual statistical review of world energy. We'll link to that in the show notes, and there's a lot of meat on that bone, as they say. First fact, renewables are now 13% of global power generation. Second fact, coal is still king, sitting on the throne for nearly 40 years. In 1985, coal-fired power was 38% of global electricity generation. Hydro was 20%, nuclear 15%, natural gas 14%, and oil was just a bit over 11%. Three and a half decades later, coal's still king at 36%, and gas has increased to almost 23%, but every other major generation source from the mid-1980s has lost relative share and it's mostly gone to renewables. Third fact, renewable power, which includes wind, solar, geothermal, biomass, and small hydropower, has grown from 0.8% of the world's electricity mix to 13%. Renewables passed the 10% mark in 2019 and have added 0.8% of market share, the same amount that they accounted for globally in 1985, on average every year since 2010. Fourth fact, carbon dioxide emissions from energy use, industrial processes, flaring, and methane rose 5.7% in 2021, with carbon dioxide emissions from energy rising 5.9%, both pretty close to 2019 levels. Fifth fact, China remained the main driver of solar and wind capacity growth last year, accounting for about 36% and 40% of the global capacity additions, respectively. Hydroelectricity generation decreased by about 1.4% in 2021, the first fall since 2015, while nuclear generation increased by 4.2%, the strongest increase since 2004, led by China. And the sixth fact, we got to look at lithium and cobalt. These minerals are powering the 21st century. The price of cobalt increased 63% in 2021 to an average of $51,000 a ton, even though output was only up by 4%. The price of lithium carbonate, a component that goes into batteries and heat-resistant glass, among other things, rose 58% to an average of $11,000 a ton. Lithium production rose by 27%. Take a look at the BP report if you get a chance. It really paints a picture of energy generation and use today and where it's headed tomorrow. It's time to unpack the acronym, that part of the show where we get to deconstruct the alphabet soup that is green investing. And we're going to go back to the Supreme Court's decision in West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. In its decision, Chief Justice Roberts cited the BSER, that's the best system of emission reduction, which the EPA used to determine the emissions limit with which power plants had to comply, until last week anyway. In the Clean Power Plan, EPA determined that the BSER, again, the best system for emissions reduction for existing coal and natural gas plants included three types of measures, which the agency called building blocks. Building block one, more efficient coal. Building block two, redispatch from coal to gas. And building block three, build renewables and keep nuclear power. The EPA then would set what it determined to be a reasonable amount of shift for power plants to make to reduce their emissions without causing unreasonable costs or disruptions to the nation's power supply. While the court ruled that the EPA has less jurisdiction over power plants than it did under the Clean Power Plan, we haven't heard the last of the BSER, the best system for emissions reduction. We're going to go out this week celebrating this week in environmental history, and we're going to head over to London, England for that. 
This week in 1855, the British scientist Michael Faraday published his famous letter on pollution in the Times of London. The letter detailed the state of pollution of the Thames River and the use of Faraday's business card to measure water opacity. His observations became famous in part because of a Punch magazine cartoon in which Faraday is humorously giving his card to Father Thames while holding his nose from the stench. Faraday said in his 1855 letter, The whole of the river was an opaque pale brown fluid. In order to test the degree of opacity, I tore up some white cards into pieces, moistened them so as to make them sink easily below the surface, and then dropped some of these pieces into the water at every pier the boat came to. Before they had sunk an inch below the surface, they were indistinguishable, though the sun shone brightly at the time, and when the pieces fell edgewise, the lower part was hidden from sight before the upper part was underwater. If there be sufficient authority to remove a putrescent pond from the neighborhood of a few simple dwellings, surely the river which flows for so many miles through London ought not to be allowed to become a fermenting sewer. He said it a lot cooler than that, though. The Thames is a lot cleaner now, but river pollution, sadly, is still with us. Thank you for being with us this week, and special thanks to Carrie Jenks from Harvard's Law School for joining the show to explain this important Supreme Court decision. We're going to post the transcript to our conversation along with links to the reports we cited in the show notes and on investopedia.com slash the Green Investor Podcast. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and recommend us, and send us feedback to podcast at investopedia.com anytime. We love feedback. In the meantime, keep it green, and we'll talk again real soon. <laughs>